Hello and welcome to Co-OpCast, a podcast about cooperative board games with your hosts, Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly. Hi, I'm Peter and I'm here with Mike. Hello, hello. And Colin. Hello, everyone. And welcome to episode nine of Co-OpCast. Yeah, so today we're very lucky to have our first uh, guest host that isn't a personal friend of the group. We have Colin, and he has an awesome YouTube channel called One Stop Co-op Shop. And uh, since we're both focused on co-op games and all the, the stuff therein, we thought it'd be awesome to have him on. And uh, yeah, Colin, why don't you tell us a little bit about your channel and some of the cool stuff you do on there? Yeah, so I, I have a channel called One Stop Co-op Shop, where I do playthroughs of mostly co-op games, but also solo games, just letting people know how the game plays and see what it's like to see if they want to pick it up. Yeah, and that is awesome. And, you know, Peter and I tend to come a bit from the uh, the design side of things, and I think it is amazing to have someone who is a an expert co-op player on today to help us out and help us with a very cool review of a recent released game. We are reviewing Spirit Island today. You know, it's funny, I heard a lot about it, and it was mostly theme-oriented discussion, because I think the theme of this game is really neat, and I think that's the first thing that kind of draws you into it. Yeah, and to talk about the theme briefly, for those who have not uh, been exposed to the game, basically, you are all on an island in the middle of the ocean that has unfortunately been chosen for colonization by a European power. But luckily for the native inhabitants of the island, the Dahan, there are a group of spirits who are both helpful and hurtful to the Dahan. Some of them are purely beneficial. Some of them, like, send them nightmares and things that aren't quite so happy. But uh, these spirits have decided that they're going to protect the Dahan from these invading Europeans. And uh, basically the game is the spirits who you control using their powers. Think uh, if you've ever played or heard of Populous, the old computer games where you would be a god reshaping the land and sending your followers out to fight people. Same kind of thing here. You use powers keyed to whatever spirit you are. You could be a spirit of the ocean, a spirit of the rivers, a spirit of fire. And you use the powers you have to try to protect the Dahan and also to frighten and destroy the invaders So let me quickly get into the rules of the game. The goal of the game is to scare the colonists off of your island. You can do that one of two ways. You can either scare them off through fear and terror, or you can destroy them so that there are no colonists left on the board. And it does it in an interesting way. You actually have this terror track. And as you cause fear throughout the game, more and more fear cards go away and they cause bad effects to the colonists. But the other thing they do is increase the terror level. And every time you increase the terror level, you actually make it easier and easier to win the game. The way it works is at terror level one, you have to destroy every single colonist on the board, all the explorers, towns, and cities. As you increase the terror level, when you get to terror level two, you'll only have to destroy the towns and cities. If you get to terror level three, you just have to remove all the cities from all the boards. And if you get to terror level four, doesn't matter how many colonists or what type are on the board, you win the game automatically. So you have two real ways of winning the game. You can do it through fear or you can do it through destruction, but a lot of times it's going to be a combination of the two. Now you lose the game if the colonists blight the land a certain number of times. And every time during this invader phase, there's a ravage portion. When there are enough invaders on a space, they will blight the land where they are. If that land's already been blighted in the past, you're not only going to add a blighted marker to that space, but you're going to add it to an adjacent space as well. 
And so this blight starts accelerating as the game goes on. And there's another timer in the game where if the invader deck runs out, you lose the game as well. Now, the way you do this is with your spirit. Every player is going to get their own unique spirit, and these spirits have a couple things that differentiate them from each other. First thing, they're going to have some special rules. They're also going to have a different growth track, and I'll get to that in a minute. They also have a different presence track, which determines how much energy they get each turn and how many cards they're allowed to play each turn. Nextly, they're going to get their own innate powers, And lastly, they're going to get their own unique deck of four power cards, and that's how most of the actions are taken in the game. On each turn, you're going to play power cards down equal to the number of cards you're allowed to play on that presence track I just talked to you about. You play cards by spending energy you have collected, which is also represented on this presence track. So you have an interesting push and pull there. As you're moving up these tracks, you're going to decide whether you want to either be able to play more cards each turn or get more energy each turn, which is the currency you need to play those cards. Now, when you play these cards to the table, they're also going to have some symbols on the side of them. And these symbols correspond to the innate powers I was talking about earlier. So a lot of times you're going to need to play two or three cards to get enough symbols to trigger these innate powers. And the cool part about that is they're actually extra actions you get on the turn. So every card you play is going to give you an action, but also these innate powers can give you extra actions if you are matching the symbols on the cards to the innate powers you have in front of you. So let me get into a turn structure real quick. I'm not going to get into every little detail because there's a lot going on, but just the basics here. So the first thing you're going to do is the spirit phase. And the first step of this spirit phase is the growth phase. Every spirit has a unique set of growth options, but all of them has at least one option that allows you to reclaim your cards, meaning take the cards back into your hand that you've already played earlier in the game. There are also always an option for gaining power cards. There are several different types of power cards in the game. There are the four you start with in your hand. There are minor powers, which usually have a zero to one cost, and you're going to be gaining those. So anytime you take a gain power action and you want a minor power, you draw four minor powers and you take one into your hand, discarding the rest. The other option is major powers, and the way major powers work is you're going to draw four major powers, keep one, take it into your hand, and you have to discard one of the other powers you have, so either another major power, a minor power, or one of those starting powers that you had. So it's a really neat mechanism here for getting more cards into your deck. It's got a little bit of a deck building element, but the interesting thing is we just talked about with the innate powers is you a lot of times want to match those symbols with your innate powers, but sometimes you just want a different power on the card. So it's really a push and pull of what cards you're going to add to your deck. And then when you get those major powers, which ones you're going to pull out of your deck as well. A lot of times this growth phase will allow you to also add presence to the board. And this allows you to expand out beyond the initial one or two spaces you're going to start at the beginning of the game. And this is crucial because all of those power cards we were talking about have a range to them. So you usually have to have influence either on the space you're affecting or within a couple of spaces of where you're affecting. So you really want to spread your influence all over the board so you have more options on your turn as far as places you can affect. The nice part is when you're adding presence to the board, it also comes off of one of those presence tracks. So this is how you're able to play more cards every turn or get more energy each turn. So you're gaining a dual benefit. The next part of the spirit phase is the gain energy step, where you look on your presence track, see how much energy you've gained. You may also get some from that growth step as well. There are sometimes bonus energy you can gain there. The last thing you do is play your power cards. 
And the way you do that is you just lay down power cards in front of you. Again, you do have a limit to the number of cards you can play, which is also shown on your presence track. And you have to pay for those cards immediately with the energy you just gained. Energy does carry over from turn to turn. So if you don't spend it all one turn, you can build up for one of those major powers later on. The next step of the game is the fast power phase. Now it's interesting, when you play these power cards, they don't trigger immediately. Some have fast effects and some have slow effects. So the fast effects happen now before the invaders act and the slow effects happen in a minute after the invaders do all their bad stuff. So after all fast powers are played, comes the invader phase. Now there's a lot of steps to this invader phase, but let's talk about the most important ones. And I'm gonna handle these in reverse order of how they actually happen in the game. But one of the things that happens is the invaders explore. So you flip over the top card from the invader deck and it gives you a land type. So let's say jungle, for example. In that case, you add explorers to every jungle that is either adjacent to the ocean or one of their cities or towns. The next action the colonists do is build. Any place they have any invaders, that means explorers, towns, or cities, they're going to add a town or city to that space. Another thing the invaders do is ravage the land. This is where you add those blight tokens. If they have at least two power there, meaning a town, a city, or two explorers, they ravage the land. So they're going to add a blight marker there, as well as do damage to the Dahan as well. After you ravage, then build, then explore, you're going to take all those cards and move them down one space. So the terrain type that just explored this turn is going to build next turn. The terrain type that built this turn is going to ravage the following turn, and the card that ravaged is going to be removed from the game. So you have a little bit of foreknowledge into what challenges await you for the next couple of turns. After the invader phase, you do the slow power phase. So any of those power cards you played or innate powers that have a slow speed to them are played now. And then you discard all the cards you have and you do it all over again. Yeah, so Colin, you're our guest here, but Mike and I have been hogging up all the airtime. What initially attracted you to this game? Yeah, so what really interested me for this game is, first of all, the theme. The theme just seemed very unique to me, and not to mention that, but also the fact that the game had simultaneous actions, and it had lots of uh, puzzly aspects to it, yet it did provide randomness so that you had replayability and lots of fun. So I decided to pick it up because it looked interesting, and one of my uncles also suggested it, so I went, hey, I'll pick it up, and boy, did I, why was I happy I did that. Yeah, that's a good summary. So, Colin, we'll start with you. Why don't you give us your number five thing? So, for those who haven't listened before, we talk about the top five things. We each have a top five list, starting with our least important thing to know, going to our most important thing to know. Some will be pros, some will be cons, some will be a mixture. So, Colin, what's your fifth most important thing to know about Spirit Island? All right, so my number five would be theme. The theme in this game, instead of you being an actual human or a person in this game, you're a spirit. And I really appreciate that. I like this idea of me not being something physical, but something more elemental, so to speak. I also really like how in this theme, we're protecting a land. So instead of us going and trying to build a land, build build buildings like you would see in any Civ game, I mean, how many civilization games are out there, right? Tons of them. Yet, in this game, here we are, we're trying to push these invaders out of our land and let the the Dahin, who are the indigenous people of this land, they can actually live and be on this land. So we use them to help us do what we're trying to do. And not only that, we help them thrive and they can help us fight back with the invaders. 
Now, the other thing that I thought was really interesting with this theme is when I open up that box, the first thing I see is that all of the invaders are white. And then the Dahin, who are considered the indigenous folk, they have this, um, it's almost like a nail topper. That's what you're using. Looks kind of like a mushroom and it's wooden. And so you get this feeling of this off color being the indigenous people and the white invaders. And it just makes it feel so real to me. You almost feel like, yeah, this is a real island and I have these invaders building on this land and I'm trying to save these indigenous people. So it's just really cool how they did that. I also really like this idea that and I heard this actually from AntLab Games. So he he and his wife do a YouTube channel and they said this, and I thought it was really cool, that we are almost like the event deck in a civilization game. We're the ones that are affecting them, making it harder for them to build. And I just think that's such a cool mechanic of swapping around what you're trying to do in the game. No longer are you trying to build, but you're actually trying to scare and fear the invaders. Well, and the other interesting thing they do is not just color, but... All the invaders are plastic, and all the blight pieces are plastic, and all of the Tahan and all of our presence markers are all wood, so it makes us feel like we have a much more one-with-the-earth type feel to us. Yeah, and I think it's just so cool how our presence on the board isn't a miniature. So we're not uh, people on the board. Instead, we're just these little discs. You hardly even see us on the board. Yet we make this presence, and our presence is known by the cards that we play. And I think that's just such a cool way of providing you this theme of I'm not a person, I'm a spirit. Man, I mean, you all are both blowing my mind with, uh, like, I had as one of my honorable mentions that the components were nice. (laughs) And you're like throwing all this crazy theme connection, which is totally sounds intentional. I love it. No, this is definitely an intentional choice. All right, Mike. So my number five is is a con, and it's one that I will add the caveat that I've only played the game at like the first three difficulty settings, so I think this might not be such a con for uh, higher difficulty games. But I do feel like the ending feels like it usually happens the same way from game to game, and it tends to be somewhat anticlimactic. I'll go back to Peter's rules explanation, um, the intersection he was talking about. Except for the games where I've played a spirit that is entirely fear-focused, every game I've played, I've won by getting to the fear level where you only have to worry about cities, and then usually there are very few cities on the board, and it's pretty easy to wipe them out. And it's, it's a little weird in this anticlimactic thing I'm talking about, because like we'll get to that fear level... And it's not like, ooh, tension, oh man, are we going to make it? It's like, I just look around the board and I'm like, oh, there are no more cities on the board. Uh, we won. And especially in my solo games, I've, I've played this several times solo, I would literally just like, I would be playing and having a great time and I'd realize, oh, I won like two turns ago. Now, the, the good thing about the game is that it draws you in so much that you're having fun the entire time, but it was just like a little weird. I was like, oh, uh, okay. So I think it'd be better at like the higher difficulty settings. Maybe I'm just playing on too easy of a level because I haven't lost the last few games. But yeah, it's it's just something that I kind of noticed. Yeah, I agree with you. And actually, neither of those things were on my list, so we're not going to have five. But yeah, I agree with both points. I think the theme is a strong point, and it's funny. I didn't even list it on my uh, top five, which is amazing. And I agree that most of the games we've won... I've pretty much known a turn before, and I think that's partly to do with the fact that it is so puzzly, but I think also the fact that it is hard to win before that, because literally new towns are popping up every turn, so it's really hard to win at any of the other levels, at least in my experience. So my number five is Learning Curve. 
I think there is a bit of a learning curve on this game. I think there is a lot going on. It's funny when I explain the rules and when I go through it step by step, and literally that's how I have to play. Even when I play solo, because I feel like if I don't read down the turn order every time, I'm going to skip a step or miss something. And I certainly have. Like I've missed, like I didn't go through everything in the invader phase, but there's like fear effects and blighted island effects. Like, I've certainly forgot to do those things in some of my games that I've played. So there is a lot of rules that go on. But I think if you follow it step by step, it's actually a pretty easy progression. But I do think it's going to take people a game or two to kind of figure out what they're doing. And I know they have recommended basic setups and starting games. I would certainly recommend doing that for your first game. And I would almost recommend soloing it your first game as well before you get it in front of other people and try to teach it to somebody else. Because I do think the rulebook does a good job of explaining everything you need to know, but I don't know that it's necessarily in a logical order that you're going to get everything the first time, and you're going to have to do some looking up for your first game or two, but I think after you get that, it's going to be really easy to teach people after that. All right, Colin, back to you. You know, Peter, you led right into it. (laughs) I, I I had it called analysis paralysis, but it's very much the same thing you're talking about. When you first open up that box and you look at all the different options in the game, which spirit you want to take within each spirit, which growth action you want to take at the beginning of the game. Then when you move from there, you're going to be placing your presence on the board. Well, there's two different tracks that you can choose from. One will give you more energy. One will give you more cards you can play per round. Which one do you choose there? Then from there, you're going to be, okay, which which uh, cards am I going to play this round? Are they going to be fast cards? Are they going to be slow cards? How are they going to interact with the other players? Where am I going to put the presence that I am able to put on the board? Where am I going to even put it on the board? There's just so much to think about in this game and it's it's wonderful it's juicy and so i find that it's a positive for me but for a lot of people this can actually be a negative because somebody who has a hard time making those decisions might have a hard time with this game because there's so many different things to think about and if someone wants to try and be an alpha gamer in this game it's going to be painful <laughs> because they're going to try and figure out everything that everybody should be doing and they probably won't even understand just what they can be doing. I mean, we've talked about this before, but uh, it's so hard for us to even figure out what we're doing, much less what someone else is going to do in this game. So, and I'm not even talking about when you gain power cards and trying to decide with those. So there's just so much to think about. The analysis paralysis can be an, an issue with this game. And just like what Peter said, Please, when you first learn this game, teach it to just one person, not three. If you're going to teach this game to three new players, you're going to have a hard time and they may even have a bad experience and not want to play it again. You'll probably want to start small and then, you know, when you play a game. So last night I played with four people, all who knew the game really well. Wonderful experience. Probably the best gaming experience I've had. I'm going to jump right in with my number four because it is fairly close to uh, the last two you both said. Uh, This is a mixed one for me. I focused on the player count and how the game changes with different player counts. But it is very much related to that same idea of analysis paralysis and kind of the fiddliness that you were talking about, Peter. So playing solo, you only have a single map, a small number of invaders... It's really pretty straightforward and simple, and and I really like that. I can play through a game in like 30 minutes or less, and my options aren't too diverse. So I love it solo. Now, having played it with uh, two and three, we haven't played with four yet, 
It's cool that there's a ton of player interaction because you can go all into each other's boards and stuff. The last game we played, I was the uh, ocean spirit and I was in everybody's ocean and I was ripping like people into the ocean every shoreline I could get to. And it was so cool. Like I love, this is one of the most interactive co-ops I've played in a while and it's almost impossible to have an alpha player. But on the negative side, going to exactly what Colin and Peter were saying... (laughs) It's just like there's three times as much space and there's three times as many options and so many invaders and going through, you know, the steps that are somewhat fiddly in the invader phase with one player becomes so, like, burdensome. It's like, all right, where are the 15 different jungles? Okay, there they are. Okay, they're exploring. Where are the 10 different mountains? Okay, they're building there. So it's it's unfortunate. And also the playtime increases drastically. Even though it's all simultaneous, it still feels like it's three times as long with three players. So, don't get me wrong, this is probably more positive than negative, but there's, yeah, I agree with y'all that there's fiddliness and there's analysis paralysis. Even though with more players it really makes the game shine, it also can be pretty dangerous. But remember, every time you've played with more players, there's always been somebody at the table that's new. So I think that affects the playtime as well. Now, I think that's a good point. And also... I was thinking, if everyone knows the game well, you can all, like, handle the invader stuff for your own board and not for everybody else's, whereas, like, when we were playing with Jerry, you and I were putting the things down for him. Alright, so moving on. My number four is the characters in this game are so varied. We've talked about this, and I know this is one of your pet peeves, where characters aren't balanced. And I don't know if these characters are perfectly balanced, but I don't think it matters. I mean, if they're off, they're not off by much. I know one I had a harder time with than others... But I think that that might have been me. I feel like, and maybe that's part of the whole deterministic thing, you have so much control in this game that I feel like when I'm not doing something well that it's my fault, not the character I'm playing with. I feel like I've got all the tools I need to be successful. But to get back to my point, all the characters seem to play so very different from each other. And I really think it's neat just exploring that. Even if there wasn't any new content, I'm having fun exploring and playing all the different spirits in the game. All right, Colin, back to you. Okay, my number three is the power cards, specifically the fast and slow power cards. Gosh, I just, I can't think of another co-op game that does this better. This fact that you have two different types of power cards. These fast cards are what I consider more tactical. They are played and used before the invaders go. So that means that if you have a place where they you really don't want them to build or you don't want them to ravage, you can take care of that at that moment, which is wonderful. That's great for those last minute things you got to take care of. But your slow cards, the slow cards is where it gets interesting. The slow cards, I think of more of like a strategic card. You'll have to pay for them at the same time and play them at the same time as the fast cards, but then you don't activate them until after the invaders go. This means you can play it, you don't have to decide which land you want to affect. So I'll play a slow card, not sure what I want to do with it, but I know I want to try something. I'll put it there, pay the cost, and then I'll sit back and watch the invaders go. They'll do their exploring, they'll do their building and ravaging. When they're done, I can go, oh, well, this is a perfect spot to use it. I'll use it over here and clear off those invaders in that specific land. Perfect. And I just, I love that differentiation because when you are building your spirit and you're gaining power cards, every time you look at that power card, you have to go, okay, do I want to be more tactical? Do I want to be more strategical? What type of things am I looking for for my spirit? And I just, I love that aspect. And I think it just adds so much to this game. And it's something that I haven't seen many other co-ops do. Yeah. And and I love the, uh, the different time phases 
Um, a game that used that well that we've mentioned before is Assault on Doomrock, where you have some abilities that you can trigger before the enemies attack and take them out so they don't attack you, and some slow abilities, so very similar. And yeah, I just think it's so interesting, as you said, to have the tactical and strategic division there. Which leads right into, perfectly, my number three, which is that this game is right in my wheelhouse. This is a pro. I love games with a hand of cards and a tactical puzzle to solve. I love Mage Knight combat, where I've got like my six or seven cards, and i got to figure out, man, how can I destroy this city? I love One Deck Dungeon, where you roll these dice, and you got to figure out, oh man, how can I use all my powers to manipulate these dice to get them to meet the enemy's requirements? And same thing here, I just love that you've got this hand of powers, you're limited in how many you can play, and you have a lot of things to think about. You know, I want to stop the ravaging, where they destroy the land, but I also want to stop them building new things, but I also want to take out the explorers... And then uh, on top of all of that, like Peter said, you, you want to play the right cards, that you get the right combos to fire your innate powers. And it's just such a meaty puzzle. And uh, like you said, Colin, especially solo, or I'm imagining with experienced players, you can just really dive into that puzzle and, and have a lot of fun with it without worrying about the game taking too long. And at the same time, I do want to say that as tactical as the game is, there's a nice amount of strategy because you can see generally what the invaders are doing for the next three turns. So you have almost perfect information to plan, and it's just really, really fun. I love the puzzle of the gameplay. Well, speaking of gameplay, my number three is there is lots of gameplay in the box. Between all the spirits we said, I mean, you have so many choices there. Then you have invaders. In the base game, three different invaders come in. And you don't even play with them in your first couple of games, right? They increase the difficulty and complexity of the game. Each of the invaders does different things. So that's going to change the way the game plays from game to game. Then they have these scenario cards, which I've looked at, but I've been too scared to play with because they add more complexity to the game. And so that's where this is a little bit of a but for me. There is so much value in this box, but I feel like everything you add adds a layer of complexity and this game already hurts my head. And so to be perfectly honest, I have not played past level one. You know, I played level zero or level one, and I played the game like eight times. So, I mean, I am afraid to add more complexity to the game. It's not that I couldn't win. I've won every game but one that I've played. It's not that I'm scared of a, a harder challenge. I'm scared of what complexity it's going to add to the game. And so for me, it's a little bit of a, I mean, it's certainly more of a pro than a con. But I do think that everything that this game adds adds a lot of complexity to an already complex game. But, I mean, if you want value, there's no question there's value in this box. All right, Colin, what's your number two? Peter already said it. <laughs> yeah, so Peter said replayability. I mean, that's essentially mine. My, my number two is replayability. The spirits we've talked to death, but one of the things that I love to do, even in solo, is to see how the spirits interact with each other. So what, you know, Mike alluded to this before. He talked about how collaborative this game is. And so even if you're playing solo and you put down those two spirits, just seeing what you can do with both of them and how you can affect each other's boards. I mean, really, I don't even feel like I have a specific board when I play that game. You start off with your own board for your land, but the moment after you're done with that, it's the whole the whole island is everywhere where you can go. And it's so cool because you can just spread across and affect each other's lands and whatnot. But with replayability, you're going to see that with the spirits and how they interact is so fun and so different each time. You might have someone that's more focused on fear and someone that's more focused on defense. How do they interact and how do they help each other? So cool. 
Also, you want to talk about replayability. You normally play on one side of the board, okay? And it's it's a nice stark color. All the lands are evenly spread out between the, between the different locations on the land. But you flip that board to the other side, and all of a sudden, you have an entirely new game. Now this board is thematic. So it looks like all the mountain locations are close together, followed by swamp locations, followed by sand. And so it provides more of an uneven experience for where um, invaders are building and exploring, because it might be in more clumped up areas. But in some ways, it's actually kind of cool and makes it feel even more realistic to me, because it makes sense that all the mountains are in the mountain region area and you can really feel it when all of a sudden you put out three cities in the mountains on that area it feels really uh, feels a lot like those invaders are building and so i just i love that you have an entire another side of the board and then with that you can play with those adversaries and with the scenarios on either side of the board and it's just oh the amount of replayability is insane and the last thing i want to mention before handing this off is the power cards so you will start off with just your basic four but there are so many growth options that let you gather more power cards and each one is just a little bit different and that's so cool and you'll draw four and get to draft one into your into your deck of cards and you'll build your own spirit each time so each time you play it your spirit will be a little bit different i could play with that earth spirit 10 times and the 10 different times i play could be a different build and be a different experience yeah i mean i I, i'm gonna talk about this in a bit but uh i i I think there's so much game here it reminds me a little bit of gloomhaven and like i'm not saying this is quite the level of gloomhaven because let's be honest nothing is but man like you know gloomhaven you open it up and you're like god i could probably play this game forever and and I don't, you know, you don't get that with co-ops that often without buying, like, you don't play Eldritch Horror forever from the base game. You gotta buy, like, an expansion after you play it five times, you're gonna get bored. But this game, the, the, you know, don't get me wrong, we have the expansion, it looks amazing, but, like, we haven't really broken it out yet. I mean, I don't know how soon we'll need to, because there's just so much gameplay in here. I, I really appreciate that. The one thing I will say contrary to that is I do think that the power cards are somewhat limited. I mean, I don't know how many are in there. What is it? It feels like 60. Yeah, and there's a lot more minor than major since you're drawing them less. That's a much smaller pile. Yeah, and you are drawing four every time. And so because you are looking to match these symbols with your innate powers, I feel like a lot of times you're going to build the spirits somewhat similarly, although you won't obviously have the same options every time. So you're not going to. But I do feel like I wish there were more of those cards, even if they just had different symbols, so I could use this card with this spirit. You know what I mean? I kind of wish there were different versions, even of the same card, and I think that would increase the variability for me a little bit, even though I think there's a ton. Don't get me wrong, but that's the one place I was like, God, I wish there was a a little bit more of this. And to contradict myself a little bit here, because I love to do that, the major power cards... Those replace some of your minor power cards. So sometimes if I don't get a minor power that works well with what I have, I will actually try to replace it very quickly with a major power. And I think that's another area of variability as well. Sometimes, I mean, I think you're always going to get at least one minor power before you start digging in those major powers. But sometimes I'll get two or three if I don't have a lot of energy that game because the minor power cards only cost zero or one energy, where the major ones could cost up to five, six, seven, eight energy. And so some games... If I'm strapped on energy, then I won't even build up to those major powers. But some games, oh, my first minor power I get, I won't be too happy with. And I'll replace it almost instantly with a major power, trying to get that to trigger. And those are also powerful. I don't even always care about the symbols on those major powers. I just want to do some cool destruction. 
All right, so my number two is going back to what Colin said earlier because it is the theme in the game. Big pro for me. I'm not going to add too much because Colin covered it really well. But to, to kind of mirror what he said, I really appreciate the, the kind of anti-colonial theme here because how many Euros do we have that are like, colonial and we don't care like puerto rico oh let's just put some you know whatever they call them settlers or something in these in these plantations and they'll grow our our wheat and it'll be fine and and even when we do have sort of indigenous peoples depicted in games it's often like a kind of cutesy depiction like the noble savage this stereotype that's been perpetrated by like movies and stuff over the years you know, thinking of games like Tuluva and stuff, where it's like, oh, you're you're all on your island, and it's so idyllic, and let's just build little villages around. So I love that this really, you know, confronts a kind of a potentially fraught topic, the colonial destruction and systematic, like, persecution of native peoples, and flips it on its head and is like, let's get rid of these cabbages. And yeah, so I really like that. And also, just another thing I'll add real quick, I really appreciate it in card games when I can read the thematic title of a card and then absolutely understand what the card's effect is and i get that here you know like i have a tsunami and it only affects things next to the water and it washes away my own people as well as theirs and it causes a lot of fear because the peaceful ocean is rising up and destroying them so i love that i can look at a card or look at one of my like spirits powers and i'm like i exactly understand why that card does what it does like there is a perfect thematic tie between the cards and the same thing with the fear effects perfect thematic tie between what they're doing and what the actual game mechanic is. Now, I just contradicted myself, and now I'm going to contradict you, Mike. I know earlier you said that you thought the game ended the same each time. I agree to that to some bit, but I do think with different spirits, and especially, I think this might be more of a problem with even higher player count games, because you're going to not necessarily be going for the same thing. So you have a little bit of destruction, a little bit of fear, and a little bit of this. But in a solo game, I mean, you can get some of these fear spirits that can't even destroy things at all. And so you literally have to race through that fear pile. And I just like that, how you have to have that intersection. I like that, I mean, we talked about this a lot at the end of our last podcast, where it forces you to kind of do multiple things. I think this one gets it right. Do I want to destroy guys this turn? Do I want to move them out so they can't build? Do I want to increase fear? And I think every turn you're faced with those decisions and challenges, so maybe it does end the same, but it's not going to end on the same turn every game. It's not like it's going to be the third card in the in the second, you know, through the second time through or whatever. It's really going to happen at different times, and you really have to push your agenda either in both ways or hard in one way. And so I do like how... This game does have that intersection, and you really kind of have to work at both halves of it to make it work well. So my number two is just variable ways to win, pushing both of those tracks. All right, Colin, what's your number one? Yes, my number one. Okay, so I just recently did a YouTube video about my top 10 favorite co-op mechanics, and this was my number one, and that was Simultaneous Actions. I really appreciate that this game uses the simultaneous actions, and I wish more co-ops would because I feel like it's a great mechanic to get people into the game and going and going strong. So what I feel like for Spirit Island, what it does is it, it provides two really important things. One, which we've already talked about a bit, is collaboration. 
because we're all playing at the same time, I have to collaborate with people on, okay, when am I going to play this card? When am I going to put out my presence? When am I going to do these certain actions and make sure that they're also taking care of other lands at the same time and that we're working together? I have never seen a game that has so much collaboration so effectively. And that's what we see with the simultaneous action. The other thing that I really like is, especially in a game that's heavy like this, is the engagement. So many times you see a game that's heavier and each person has an individual individual turn and all of a sudden the people who aren't going, they're on their phones. They're on Facebook. They're doing something else because they can't interact. Well, in this game, it's always your turn. It's always your turn. If you're someone who already knows how to play the game, you can even be putting out the invaders during the invader phases on your specific land. So that means in every phase, you are invested and you are doing something. And that means that you no longer are sitting around waiting for your turn. It's always your turn. And I just, I love that. I love that. And it works so well in Spirit Island. The only issue I see with that is somebody with AP, if someone has analysis paralysis, everyone else can be ready and you're sitting and waiting for them for the next phase. But overall, if you're playing this game with people who know how to play, you will love how quickly you go through all the different steps. You had mentioned before how you felt like uh, more players meant the game was longer and mostly I agree, except for just last night when I played with four people that knew how to play. That's the first time that we've done that. The game went so fast because everyone knew what to do and everyone knew how the phases worked and it was fantastic. So I think that's the sweet spot for this game. Cool. All right, Mike. Yeah, so uh, again, I'm I'm kind of rehashing things you all have already said, but man, I love the different spirits and the asymmetry of the, uh, the powers here. And I'm super excited to play the expansion and get even more of it. Something I'll add... The power, the spirits play so differently, and it just excites me. When I borrowed it from uh, Peter and Jerry and played solo the first time, and it was already late, and I had to get up early for teaching the next day, I think I, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll just set up one more game because man, that other spirit looked really cool, and I played a solo solo game of that, and I was like, you know, th- that that guy did fear really well. How about a guy who destroys it? Let me try one of these destruction people, and I, I think I played like three or four solo games in a row just to try out more of the spirits, man, and. They're just so different, and they're cool, and they're thematic, and I love it. And something this game gets right, and, you know, we talked about Too Many Bones recently, and and one of my negatives for Too Many Bones is that, barring some really specific enemies I have to face, I'm building that character the same way every time. And I'll disagree with you, Peter, when you said that you're going to, like, kind of build your your spirit the same way each time, you're going to take the same powers because of their elements... Some games I've played, I've totally played against type. I'm like, man, I really can't just go fear. I need to destroy some guys. Let me take this destruction power. Some games I've doubled down on what I'm already good at. I'm, you know, I, I'm already the water spirit. I'm going to get a tsunami too. These guys are all drowning, you know? Like, I find that every game I play, not only do I have eight spirits to choose from just in the base box, but each of those spirits is going to look different in their powers every game. I don't even grow them the same way. Some games I want to play more cards. Some games I want to have more energy and have more major powers. So this game just gets the asymmetry the perfect way, where you have the uniqueness of each individual person you can play as, but then you add on those variable decks that just make the replayability and the changes in the spirits even better. And the expansion's going to blow that off the roof because you have, like, wild animals and all this crazy stuff, and I cannot wait. Very cool. You guys aren't excited at all about this game. I can totally tell. <laughs> this is going to be the most anticlimactic 
what are your final thoughts segment we've ever had i think you guys i hate it (laughs) you guys are definitely wearing your heart on your sleeve in this one so my number one is it is a fun puzzle and i don't i know we've talked about this and we've hinted at it but i don't know that we've really talked about the fact that it is a puzzle there is really not much randomness in this game the only randomness you really have is when you flip over that explore action every turn it's going to give you a new type of land and it's going to tell you where to put explorers out on the board but after that you know what those explorers are doing next turn next turn they're building the turn after they're going to blight the land so you are really trying to solve that puzzle of figuring out what to do with those you know what cards you're going to have in your hand because you can either choose to redraw your cards or you can choose to play with the cards and the energy you have in your hand. So it really is a puzzle from beginning to end, and a really good one at that. So if you like something without a lot of randomness, there's really not much. Yes, there's, I think, three pieces of randomness. Number one, what powers you're going to draw. Number two, where they explore. And number three, what those fear cards say. And those fear cards could make a huge difference, don't get me wrong. But beside that, you know every other piece of information in the game... And for such a puzzly game, there really isn't a lot of alpha player from what I've seen because I think you have so much to think about yourself. You can say, hey, can somebody push these guys here? Or, hey, no, I've got that place taken care of. You take care of someplace else. But nobody's really saying you have to do this because I'll be honest, I barely know what cards are in my hand. I certainly (laughs) don't know what cards you have in your hand. All right, so, uh, yeah, I know this is going to be a real shocker, but let's get to our uh, final thoughts and kind of overall impressions. Colin, lead us off, man. Yeah, so you can probably guess I love this game. This is probably one of my top ten. I absolutely cannot get enough of it. I, I haven't played a game except for Gloomhaven that I've played 15 to 20 times and still feel like I can play the base game and be fine. So the replayability of the game, the fact that we have simultaneous actions, so everybody, when I'm playing with four people, the game can take around the same amount of time as I'm playing you know, two-player or even solo. I, I really appreciate that. And, and the fact that it's a puzzle, I really love puzzles, but then and it has that predictable randomness that allows the game to be replayable. And I just, I think that's all fantastic. I highly recommend this one. I just be careful when you do teach it. Don't teach it to too many people at one time so that everybody has a good experience. All right, Mike. I can't remember every game we've reviewed recently, but I feel like we've been in a string of like mediocre, like, ah, it's okay. I kind of like it sort of games. This is not that. I'm really into this game. I really enjoy the theme. I like it solo. I like it multiplayer. This is one of those rare games that even though I almost exclusively game with you and Jerry these days and uh, and play some solo at home, and you are already bought a copy and it's really difficult to find, I'm like, man, I'll, I'll buy this too at some point probably. I just want to have a copy at home that I can break out whenever I want. Yeah, this this is... It's such a great game. I really appreciate this design. It's fun. It's thematic. As Colin said, once you get over the learning of the game, once you get over the AP, it's it's a real gem. Yeah, I'm going to just pile on. You know, I think it's a great game. It's funny. You said you brought it home and you played it several other times that night. I played this game the first time I played it, and I literally played it six times that day. <laughs> It's funny because sometimes you play something and, you know, sometimes I'll play something because I'm like, oh, I got to play it a couple more times to get a feel for it, see if I like like it enough, get some final thoughts on it. This game, there was no problem with that. Every time I played it, I wanted to play it again. Every time I was done, I wanted to set it up again. And it's funny because I did hear this game was long and that was one of the complaints I had heard about it. But I mean, 
if you learn the game, and once you learn the game, this game is not long. I also heard it's hard, and I guess as you ramp up the, the power level, it could get hard, but I mean, I, I didn't think it was unfairly hard. I felt like I was in control of my own destiny, and that's that puzzling nature of it. So I agree with you guys. I will happily play this game anytime. All right, so I think we're going to keep this hashtag co-op revolution going here tonight. We're going to get into our design discussion, and today we're going to talk about puzzly elements and co-ops. I know it's a shock considering we just talked about the puzzly nature of this game and just some of the pros and cons. So Colin, as not as a designer, but just as someone who plays games, what do you like or dislike about you know puzzly elements and co-ops? For me personally, I really enjoy a good co-op that has a puzzle. If you think of a game like Pandemic, Pandemic, I think of a lot of as a puzzle, right? So you initially infect different cities. And then what happens is, you know, those same cities are going to get infected a second time. So because of that, what you're trying to do is just prevent those issues in those certain locations. There's a lot of locations you can completely ignore because you know, they're not going to get hit once that first epidemic comes. And so that game, what it does so well, why it's so gosh darn popular is because of that simple thing of random at the beginning you don't know where the city locations are but then once that epidemic comes you shuffle those cards put them on top and then you know okay those are the cities that are going to get hit but you don't know when when which one's going to get hit first and so then that is the randomness that's provided and creates the puzzle um that's so good for a co-op i mean if you want a true puzzle play a euro solo a euro solo is wonderful i mean i'm just i've been playing feast of odin solo oh i love it it's a great solo game But once I hit 200 points, probably never going to play it solo again because you've solved it. That's the issue with a puzzle-only game. You need to have something else, and that's what Pandemic has provided. And so for me as a player, I really want to see a co-op game that has a puzzle yet provides that randomness to give you that replayability. I agree with everything you said, Colin. There are definitely pitfalls, though, and I think we all know this. We've already mentioned with Spirit Island, and some games are way worse. The more puzzly the game, I think the greater potential for analysis paralysis. And also, Spirit Island sidesteps this well, but in most games that are a co-op puzzle, the greater potential for alpha player. Like, Pandemic is a good example. You know, I generally know where things are going to come. You know, my my cards, some people even play with them on the table. And it's, like, very easy for me to say, well, yeah, we need to get that city, we need to get that city, that one's probably coming up, go there. So I I think you do have to find ways to keep the puzzle but have enough randomness or enough hidden information or enough simultaneous gameplay. There are many ways to do it so that you don't fall into this trap of dull, slow-paced, like, plodding through the puzzle, which isn't fun for anybody. Well, and yeah, that is the point I was going to bring up. That is the thing you have to be most careful of is not having predictability. And I'll talk about a game that we're working on right now. You know, we've worked on it and we've fine-tuned it so well (laughs) that you know exactly what's going to happen at the end of every game. And that's just not fun for everybody. We're like, oh, but we need luck mitigation here and we need luck mitigation there. Well, at some point, you take out all the luck and there's nothing left. Literally, (laughs) there is nothing left in the game and it is just this puzzle for you to solve and work on, which in the right circumstances can be good, but in other circumstances, part of the excitement, part of why we love games is those moments, right? The end of the game dice roll, the end of the game card flip. Even if you know what cards are in the deck, like in Pandemic, 
there's this slight chance that that one in 50 cards you flipped or, you know, one in 20 you flipped is going to be the next one that comes up. And that moment where your heart just stops for a moment, there's nothing like that in gaming. So I think when you are making a puzzle game, you do have to be careful of making something that's too predictable. Well, Colin, let's not give a short shrift to the other side. Uh, what do you think are some benefits and maybe some drawbacks of, you know, just <laughs> by the seat of your pants, experience-based co-ops, like something like an Arkham Horror where, you know, you go to a mansion and get eaten by a werewolf, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I, you know, for me personally, I I think of games such as Eldritch Horror or Arkham Horror or one that I even just recently played, Zaya, Legends of a Drift System. These games I think of more as an experience than a game <laughs> because... In these types of games, instead of you spending your time trying to figure out a puzzle, you're spending your time getting engulfed into the theme of the game. When I go and sit down for a game of Zaya, Legends of the Drift System, all of a sudden I am a space explorer exploring the entire universe. And that is just so much fun. I don't care that I'm just rolling dice and moving, you know, a simple roll and move game. What what I get from it is this exploration and I get this feeling of I'm truly creating something. And, you know, I'm actually doing a playthrough right now, Seventh Continent, and I feel this exact thing. So in Seventh Continent, all you know is you need to get rid of a curse. (laughs) How? No idea. So all you have to do is start exploring. And that's what you do is you just start exploring and you become immersed by the art and, and by the different simple decisions that you're making. But those simple decisions lead you into an entire experience. I do think the one thing, and I think Seventh Continent avoids this from what I've heard from you and Peter, but uh, the one thing that does bother me sometimes in experience-based games is when not only am I just walking around, but I don't feel like I know what I'm doing or what my objective is. And kind of the sort of classic example of this, not a co-op, but uh, Tales of the Arabian Nights. Like, yeah, it, it's fun. It's fun to walk around and, like, get turned into a pig And then, you know, have to run away from like a farmer and then, you know, and suddenly I'm not a pig anymore and then I'm in the ocean. You know, that's fun for about 30 seconds. (laughs) But at some point it's like, can I, can I please just know where I was supposed to go? Or like, am I supposed to get rich? I'll get rich, but I have no idea how to get rich because I went to the merchant and uh, he robbed me. So, hey, there we go. I have no idea what's going on. So I, I will say that experience, pure experience with no clear goals or at least like ideas of how I might achieve my goals. Even Eldritch Horror, like, yes, I don't know exactly what the test is going to call for, and I might have to do something super random, but, you know, some of the skills are more likely in gate closing. Some of the skills are more likely in uh, the, you know, artifact uh, expedition spaces. So just that little bit of, like, objective or little bit of me knowing I'm better here than I am there, my character performs better in this place than that place, that's all I need to dive 100% into an experience. Well, and to some degree, you said this about Mansions of Madness, too, right? That was the negative you had for Mansions of Madness. While the story is great and gets you engaged, they don't always let you know what you need to know. And sometimes it's almost like a murder mystery or even Clue the movie, one of the greatest movies of all time, right? (laughs) That movie had three different endings. Why? Because it could have gone any different way. And sometimes you feel you're playing games like Mansions of Madness and you have that, right? It could be any of these 10 people that did it. What am I really learning here? I'm walking around, I'm talking to them, but I don't know that I'm getting information that will help me solve a mystery, And so I think sometimes you can focus too much on the experience 
and too much on red herrings and not really give people information that they feel like they are making informed choices in the game. Yeah, you know, and for me, with Mansion of Madness, I felt like that wasn't even really a game. Instead, it was simply just the experience, that's it. Because if you think about the mechanics in that game, you roll dice, and then you hit something on the app, and then you roll some more dice, and you see if you succeed, that's about it, right? I mean, you know, yeah, you become insane, and that changes uh, some things of what you can do. Maybe you can't talk or whatever. But it just, it felt like to me, when we played Mansion of Madness, it just... It, it didn't give you any of those directions, anything that you were really striving for. Instead, it was just a, let me go check on this picture and maybe I'll find something. Great. Or, you know, I just, I, I what I want is to have at least some sort of direction in a game to make it feel more like a game instead of just a open, open world of randomness. Yeah, I mean, uh, do I, do I explore the painting? Well, sometimes I do and sometimes it's useless. Anyway. All right, guys. Yeah, I think we've taken this discussion a lot of different cool directions. So let's get back to where we started. Puzzly co-ops. Like, what is one piece of advice we can give people if you're going to try to make a good one? What is one thing that really sticks out to you that takes a game from good to great? I'll just say real quick, find a way to avoid AP and alpha player, unless it's just a solo game. If it's just a solo game, hey, go nuts. Make it like a six-hour, you know, war game slog, and good for you. <laughs> but if you want other people to play together, and uh, you want it to be a puzzle, you gotta solve those, just like Spirit Island did. And for me, it's just add a little bit of input randomness. Every turn can be a puzzle, but make sure it's a different puzzle. Make sure you're changing that puzzle. Make sure that puzzle is dynamic. You're not doing the same thing turn one that you did turn 10. Make that puzzle different and interesting and exciting and make it so I have some agency so I can change my path halfway through if I need to, to find a way to figure out that puzzle. And I think that way you avoid a lot of those things that we've been talking about. And uh, to reiterate what Colin said, because I thought it was great, I think it's okay to realize that puzzle games can be puzzle games and you can dive into that puzzle you know and thematic games can be thematic games and random crazy simultaneous games can be random crazy simultaneous games it's okay to really like dive in deep with the sort of main mechanical arc you choose there's no perfect game and it's not like every game needs to have puzzles in it so just make good games and we'll play them all right well colin thank you so much for joining us We really appreciate it. This was very cool. And you were our first official guest on the podcast. Yay! Yeah, and you definitely won't be the last. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for what you do for co-op games. And please, if you haven't checked him out yet, make sure you check out his YouTube channel. Yeah, and Colin, can you uh, give us the name again and tell tell people some cool videos you've done recently, uh, mention some stuff they can go check out? Yeah, so it's a one-stop co-op shop, and uh, I think right now what we're doing, we've got uh, Seventh Continent. I've just started that one. I'm just finishing up Massive Darkness and going to be starting Sword and Sorcery, the second quest. Nice, nice. Yeah, so please go check Colin out. And Colin, we would love to have you back again, man, uh, down the line. If you want to be another uh, guest, we'd uh, love to have you. Very cool. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on another episode of Co-Op Cast. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-Op Cast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. 
Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at mvpboardgames at gmail.com. It's good enough. I think I think Ka- Ka- Callan was giving us a little applause there at the end. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Co-op cast now with live studio audience. Woo! And then we'll get into episode. I think it's nine. Yeah. Yeah, because our decade episode is next time. Yes, it's been a decade already. It's amazing how fast time flies. We've been recording it for ten years, and we have eight podcasts out. And welcome to episode 8 of Co-Opcast. Episode 9, Peter. Welcome to episode 9 of Co-Opcast. <laughs> Alright, don't do that at all. <laughs> That's fine, man. Roll with it. <laughs> and welcome to episode 9 of... <laughs> I can't even do it. <laughs> I can't You're just gonna like try. drop it in like that? <laughs> I was, I was gonna, I was just gonna edit all that out and try to go with it, but I can't, I can't do it. All right, uh, this is gonna be a long episode. We're gonna have twelve hours of material to edit down to thirty minutes. All right, let's go, man. All right, and welcome, son of a gun. This is the professional quality we've come to expect. And this is and, and you wonder why it takes me four hours to edit this thing. <laughs> also, you want to talk about replay a bit. And so I really do think that that makes for a very cool cooperative experience. Uh, yeah, I should have ended that better, but. <laughs> I think they get the gist. It's not, it's not very good. <laughs> Each of them has six different levels on them of difficulty. Well, from level one all the way to level six, which is how what six different <laughs> levels of difficulty is, is, is means. If you didn't know that, I apologize. So, awesome. uh, actually, they start at level twenty and go to level twenty-five. It's really weird. I don't know why they do that. It's for scoring purposes only. Have a good one.